Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! It's, it comes from a, a historical place. In Chicago in the, in the mid-20th century, the city's movers and shakers and the writers and all the, the brilliant weirdo minds would gather in Washington Square Park and they would debate the topics of the day. They would hop up on soapboxes and they would shout out their opinions on things. And eventually it became to be known as Bug House Square. Bug House is a derogatory term for loony bin or batshit cavern or insane asylum. So here tonight, we're doing the same thing. We're getting a bunch of crazy, brilliant minds to talk about the important topics of the day. But tonight, we're doing it without social media. We're able to look face to face and actually get into the argument. The point of tonight is not exactly what the opinion is, but how well it's communicated, how well the argument is made. Because what gets lost in social media, what gets lost in a lot of the debate today, cable news, etc., is that we're not thinking about what we're actually saying and how we're saying it, but just that this loud and this is my opinion, this is my opinion, but we need facts and actual thought that goes into it. And that's what you're gonna hear tonight from these six performers. And the topics of the day that need to be discussed and sorted out are, has democracy been compromised? That'll be our first bout tonight. Our second, fiction. Who is allowed to tell these pretend stories? Is it better to make it up, or do you have to live it? And then finally, the better drug, booze or weed? Yeah. <laughs> Our debaters tonight include Joe Janes and Brian Sweeney. Oh, yeah. Paul Teodo and yours truly, David Himmel. <laughs> ben Oksher and a presenter, his words, Brett Dworsky. Uh, has democracy been compromised? Please welcome to the stage Joe Janes and Brian Sweeney. Now, Joe will be arguing that democracy has been compromised, while Sweeney is saying that the balance remains in check. And Joe? You drew the short straw, you're going first. Please welcome Joe James. Thank you, thank you very much. On the heels of Black History Month and the uh, beginning of Women's History Month, I want to commend David on assembling the most diverse group of white men that you could find. <laughs> Happy to be going first. Uh, this was a very depressing topic, so I am arguing that yes, democracy has been compromised, so I'm gonna to try to smile and be lighthearted as much as I can while telling you horrible things. Uh, has democracy been compromised? Yes, it has. Off and on since its inception, but most recently, and perhaps irreparably, since December 12, 2000. Ever since a conservative Supreme Court stepped in to stop a Florida recount and declared George W. Bush was the president over Al Gore. Dissenting justices wrote that the recount process, while flawed, should be allowed to proceed on the grounds that the constitutional protection of each vote should not be subject to a timeline. I forgot to smile, I'm sorry. <laughs> Trying to smile. Citizens United was a Koch brothers funded campaign that brought a case before the Supreme Court in 2010 that overturned decisions by the Federal Election Commission that protected campaign funding against massive corporate influence. Corporate money, anonymous money, has been pouring in ever since. Citizens United does not exist for citizens. It exists for multi-billion dollar companies who wish to control the elected members of government. It is through Citizens United that the Supreme Court determined that corporations are people, and they have a right to be heard. A right to be heard, of course, means spend money on politicians who support their agenda. <laughs> 
2013, a conservative Supreme Court struck down key components of the Civil Rights Voting Act of 1965, freeing states, mostly in the South, to change their voting regulations. Chief Justice Roberts quote, was quoted as saying, our country has changed, implying that there was no longer a need to protect black voters because America's better? Hmm. Gerrymandering, closing or moving polling stations, changing voting times, voter ID laws, purging registered voters have all been tactics enacted since then to further keep those in power in power. <laughs> you would be hard pressed to find an intelligence agency anywhere in the world that does not believe Russia interfered in the 2016 US presidential election. You would also be hard pressed to find any, an agency that does not believe it isn't happening right now. Every policy in Congress to support election protection from foreign interference has been shot down by a Republican-controlled uh, Senate in spite of evidence that it is needed. <laughs> We're on the precipice of a pandemic. <laughs> and most of the meetings at the White House this past week have been with the economists and big pharma executives. Wall Street is more important than you. For the people, by the people is now for the dollars, for my dollars. By the people is now sell the people. Thank you. Thank you. I was pretty proud of that one. <laughs> Look, now I'm not here to paint a, a dark vision of our future, one that says we're fucked no matter what because the people in power want to keep the money train flowing no matter who it fucks, as long as it's not them. I'm here to sing. <laughs> Oh, say, can you see where the man takes his bite out of your backside? Why aren't you screaming? You pay more income taxes than a billionaire might. Fewer people voting fills their jeans creaming. Old right witch men don't care if you didn't think it's fair. Racism, guns, and abortion helps keep their money still there. Oh, watch how that orange speckled asshat's hair waves. Or the Brian Sweeney. Brian Sweeney. Hello. <clears throat> well, first let me uh, tell you what democracy is, Let's, so that we're all on the same page. Democracy is a form of government in which common people hold political power. It's a philosophical idea that came from ancient Greece, AKA the cradle of civilization, where great things were happening like philosophy, science, poetry, and of course, boy fucking. <laughs> yes, ancient Greece was a place where romantic relationships between an adult male and a younger male was socially acknowledged and cool, and was, quote, the principal cultural model for free relationships between citizens, end quote. That was ancient Greece, or as Joe James calls it, the good old days. <laughs> but enough about Joe James and his love of pederasty. <laughs> we love to talk about democracy. Is it okay? Yes, because democracy is a philosophical concept. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounded really snooty. It's very Bill Maher of me. <laughs> Uh, it's fine, okay. Thank you. Um, 
Uh, it can't be destroyed. It's neither in good shape or bad shape. It's like asking about the state of math. How's, how's math? You think it's gonna be okay? Oh my God, Donald Trump's tweeting. What are we gonna do about algebra? Do you think it can withstand this? Oh no, Amy dropped out. All right. Um, we live in America, so we don't really know if a working democracy would be good or bad because in America, we don't have democracy. Um, and I don't mean that in like, a, hey, I'm in college and I just read Howard Zinn or I'm gonna pretend that I can stay awake during Noam Chomsky's lectures. Um, what I mean is, does anyone in this room know what the actual form of government the United States of America has? No, no. The act, like the thing that, like, if you like went into what? Close constitutional republic. By the way, this is a democracy. What we just did, none of you know. And this is what we're supposed to be like, oh no, this is bad, we should be okay with this. No one in this room, I didn't know, I knew it was like, eh, I've heard Republic and whatever, but okay. Everyone's dumb, we're not that smart, come on guys. Except Sadie. Uh, anyway, uh, the founding fathers of, I don't need to hear anymore, he wins. Uh, the founding fathers of America, maybe you've heard of them, <laughs> they were not fans of direct democracy. Of course they weren't, as they were slave-owning, white land-owning men. They were against anyone who was not a white land-owning male to have a voice in the government. Or as Joe Jaynes calls it, the good old days. Come on, that was a good <laughs> run. Today, March 2nd, 2020, we have a president who was not elected by the majority of the people. This is the second time in the past two decades that this has happened. George W. Bush was elected president in 2020 without the majority of the vote. The next year brought the 9-11 attacks, or as Joe Jane calls it, the happiest day of his life. <laughs> Look, this was a hard one to argue. I had to go just slamming my opponent a lot for no apparent reason. I had to be like, everything's fine, guys. All right, I shouldn't have uh, said that out loud. Um, uh, and our elective uh, representative government unified at and curbed many freedoms of liberty of the public. The decline of Western liberal democracy is all you really need to see that what happens when you half the ideals, like you just do a little bit, when you practice just the tip democracy. <laughs> The shit that happens in the world today is what comes from it. Or as Joe James calls it, get back to talking about fucking kids. <laughs> Socrates, Socrates, you may remember from him from uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, did not like the idea of democracy for a very good reason. Many people aren't educated enough in politics to choose who should run the world. Socrates asked, if you were heading out on a journey on the sea, who would you ideally want deciding who was in charge of the, of the vessel? Just anyone? Or people educated in the rules and the decorum of seafaring, faring? Of course, you want the dude who knows about seafaring. It's a lot like when we took my mom to Firestone for her chemotherapy. It was sad, it got sadder because she died. Because Firestone is actually an auto place. But democracy, I didn't understand. So why then do we keep thinking that any old person should be, uh, would be a fit judge to see who's the ruler of the country? Sadie, do you like pornography? Do you masturbate to pornography? Or do you just use your head? Because I masturbate to pornography, but so I checked out the top searches of 2019 Pornhub because that's more 
and you scream, no, no, I'm sure no one in this room would allow anyone to look at their searches because it would show how just the scumbaggery that you really are. Yeah, it, it's bad. It's bad news. Uh, the number one is amateur, then the number two is alien. These are voters. <laughs> number three is POV, all right. Number four is Belle De Delphine. Like, there's uh, so many people that are jerking off to, these, to that. I didn't know what that was. She's some like YouTube personality who doesn't even do porn, but everyone's horny. <laughs> Five is cosplay, six is Mature, seven is bisexual, and eight is Apex Legends, which is a PS4 game. <laughs> I, this is why we have Super Tuesday. Like, this is what democracy would be. One man, one vote. I asked Joe James what his main search was. He said, the kid who plays young Sheldon. <laughs> That's democracy. Uh, but as an abstract philosophical concept, concept, democracy is doing great. The actual tactile world we all live in and interact with, however, is doomed. Thank you. Are there any questions from the audience for either of our performers? Either of our debaters? Yes? Joe, Joe is that true? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it's completely unrelated to like, validity and depth, which you both dove into your time subjects. Um, how long did it take you to write that version of the Star Spangled Banner? The question is, Joe, how, how long did it take you to write that version of the Star Spangled Banner? Uh, I started writing my whole piece for tonight at 3 Any questions for Brian? Mine was all off the dome. Yeah. I thought we were freestyling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Brian, how long was your interview? Of, uh, did it take you to interview Joe James? How long did it take you to interview Joe James to gain the knowledge you had? It was like 15 minutes, and then he went into the bathroom and came out in the bathrobe and asked if I would watch him shower. <laughs> started masturbating into a potted plant. Uh, so I tried to get out of there. That's my rule. Yeah. That's what he kept saying. Fair enough. Yes, sir, you have a question. I do have a question for Brian. I recently had an issue with my vehicle. And I totally got fucked over. Would you recommend Firestone as a place to get work done on my car? So the question is, Brett recently had an issue with his vehicle. And he got fucked over by Firestone. No, I, I, I got fucked over by the oh, place I went to. Oh, you got fucked over by the place you went to? Is, would he recommend Firestone? Would, Brian, would you recommend Firestone to Brett to get his car fixed? I'd recommend Northwestern has a really good endocrinology section. <laughs> I'd recommend trying there. I've heard good things about that. Uh, but yes, I, I suppose, if, you, if you're listening, Firestone, I'll whore for you, whatever you want to. But yeah, it's good. Good fire, some good tires. So the answer was Firestone Brian is for sale. Yes. See that? Okay. Democratic. Yeah, that was very democratic. All right. Sadie, Your Honor, do you have any questions or any anything you want to throw at these guys before you make your decision, or have you come to your ruling? Joe is opposed to pedophilia.
bad thing. I gotta say though. It'd be weird to be like, then I picked up and he starts like my fucking voice. <laughs> Came back around when you uh, made it relative, and I don't even know that you did this on purpose, but relative to where we could be, it seems like democracy is still working. And then, given what happened to you earlier today with Joe, and that it's Women's History Month, Brian Sweeney's the winner. All right, there it is. All right, let's do our next our next debate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Please welcome to the stage, Carl Teodo. And 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 me. Um, so we agree that I would go first? Yes. And Paul will? Go second. We'll go second. All right. That's, I'm not good at math, so thank you for the help. You're welcome. So we're debating here uh, fiction, making it up versus living it. Any fiction can be written by anyone. Write what you know. That's the unwritten law of literature. Take an experience and turn it into a story. But that story doesn't have to be a memoir. It can be. It can also be a fun tune. <laughs> the story can be a, a, a memoir, but it can, it can inspire you to write something else. Historical fiction, an essay, a poem, and of course, the most difficult of literary vehicles, fiction. Writing what you know doesn't mean writing exactly what happened or even exactly what you know. It's a starting point. It's an idea generator. That's what makes fiction such a cool genre. An author can sit down with the inspiration of a horse they knew as a kid, and that can turn into a tale of adventure on the back of a space dragon on the planet Festerfart in the brown trial solar system, some 57 billion light years from our own. An author can witness the beating of an elderly black male by police, probably in Chicago, and write a heart-wrenching novel that presents parallel storylines, that of the beaten man and that of the cop, giving us, the reader, a look into the differences and similarities that arise following such an event. An author can think about a preteen crush 30 years later and be inspired to write a romantic comedy about two people finding love after devastating divorces. An author does not need to have lived the story to write it. They do not need to be a space traveler to tell you about the dragon on planet Festerfart. They don't need to be an old black man or a cop to tell you their stories. An author who writes fiction need only to have an imagination and the commitment to being honest in their world of make-believe. An author, if an author is writing a pretend story, if an author is writing a pretend story, that could happen in the real world. They would be doing themselves and the reader a favor by doing research where research is needed. For example, our good friend Brett Dworsky here, a couple weeks ago, sent me an email. He's working on a story, a fiction story, about racists, the racist uh, Mississippi in the 1980s, or something like that. Sure. But his question was, how do I handle like the language? Because I don't want to just drop the N-word and all these horrible racist things in there, but these are what the people say. So, Brett was not, was barely alive in the 80s. I was not alive in the 80s. You, at all? No. What year were you born? 93. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> born in 1993, he can grow better beer than I can. I was born when Carter was fucking president. I got, I got Clinton. So. You got, yeah, we all got Clinton. Um, but the point is, he did this research because he didn't know about it, but he's got this story, something that inspired him to tell this story. So he reached out, to, like, how do I, he reached out to writers, and I don't know what other research he did, but clearly he's doing his research on how to make this a true story in this fictional world that he's creating. American Dirt is a novel by Janine Cummins. It's the fictional story of a Mexican mother and a son's journey to the border after a cartel murders the rest of their family. Stephen King lauded the book. So did Oprah. She said of the book in a video posted on Twitter, I was opened, I was shook up. It woke me up! I'm assuming that's what it sounded like. 
I didn't watch the video. And I feel that everybody who reads this book is actually going to be immersed in the experience of what it means to be a migrant on the run for freedom. So I want you to read. This book was going to be huge. And then the backlash began. It has since been called stereotypical. Cummins has been accused of appropriation because she identifies as white, although she does have a grandmother who's Puerto Rican. And Joe Biden has a friend who's black. <laughs> the question and controversy that encircles this book is who has the right to tell what stories? So, who has a right to tell pretend stories? The answer is simple. Anyone who doesn't suck at writing. <laughs> yes. John Green wrote The Fault in Our Stars. Should he have not written it? He's not a teenager. He's not riddled with cancer. So what the fuck does he know? And by writing that story as an adult male, did he take the story away from a young cancer patient who wants to kiss a boy? Did J.K. Rowling, did J.K. Rowling appropriate Harry Potter from Teenage Wizards? Of course not. You don't have to be the thing you're writing about unless you're writing a memoir. Like James Frey's A Million Little Pieces, another book Oprah got, well, uh, got wet all over. <laughs> she did. <laughs> Brian, Brian's seen that video. And you'll recall that it turned out Frey's book was more fiction than memoir, so why didn't he, didn't he just position it as fiction? Because he's an idiot. Because he felt it would have more impact if it were a real story. The thing is, whether it's entirely fiction or just partly fiction, it's still a good story. But by writing a quote-unquote memoir about drug addiction, did Frey cause the market to seize up? No more memoirs about addiction! This guy did it! Of course not. Every addiction story is different. Every memoir, every piece of fiction. And if something isn't, then it's either derivative, because the author is lazy, or it's plagiarism. Cummins' American Dirt doesn't, doesn't take the story of immigrants away from actual immigrants. They have their stories. They should tell them. And here's where the rub is. They must have the platform to tell those stories. That is, publishers ought to be looking for diverse voices. Not simply to fill a skin color or gender quota. Thank you, Sadie. But because diversity is a great thing for creativity. I don't know what the publishing industry is like for a person of color. I do know that I've come across a lot of agents and publishers who are looking specifically for women and people of color, which rules me out, which is why I think the diversity should be about the stories. What's good? What's got a new approach to a familiar tale? Perhaps that comes from fewer white men. I, I don't care, that's fine. It, that just makes me have to work harder to be better. And that feels like a good challenge to have. I don't wanna squash the voices of any group of people. Look, if a black Muslim wanted to write a novel about a family of European Jews fleeing Nazi occupation, I'd be fine with it. As long as it was a good story and treated its characters with kindness and was honest and true in its depiction of how realistic events and characters happen and act and react. That said, if there are two fantastic stories about immigrant, immigrant families fleeing the cartels for America and one is written by a white lady, the other written by a Latina woman, publish them both. There's plenty of space for these stories on our shelves and in our hearts. Thank you. And on the other side, here's Paul Toyota. Okay. Uh, I was asked to, uh, to present the case from the perspective of, if you're writing fiction, you should write what you know. And it was prompted by American Dirt, written by Cummins. And most of what I'm going to say in the next six minutes and 45 seconds uh, <laughs> may not be true. <laughs> and that is because I think the whole issue of 
American dirt, and the opposition to it is because of the word is. <laughs> and what I propose to you, not what is the truth, is that whenever we is people, they get fucked. Commonly referred to as racism, discrimination, stereotypes. And what I believe, it may not be the truth, but what I believe this issue has come about due to the oppression of a certain group of people. And on top of that, oppression sells books, especially if the oppressor either overcomes the oppression or kills off the fuckers who are oppressing them. I've only read a short snippet or two of the book, but from what I gather, at the end, the bad guys lose or the oppressed get something good. If it ended in a fashion where the bad guys continue to win, and it doesn't put the existential despair in the right framework, we wouldn't have heard about the book because nobody would have fucking bought it. <laughs> it wouldn't be popular. It wouldn't be soon to be made into a movie. I propose to you that we say that something is good because it arouses us in some way. You know, People don't buy the newspaper, and this is corny, but I'm the oldest person in the room. Anyone close to 70? No, okay, I am. Uh, because we read the newspaper because dog bites man as opposed to man bites dog. No, we read it because man bites up. Something's different. I'm, I'm a writer, sort of. You're a writer. A Couple of books got published, number of uh, stories. I took a class for five years. The formula for writing is desire. Somebody has a desire. There is a gigantic fucking obstacle in the way of that desire. The person then goes after the desire in spite of the obstacle. In fact, if there is no obstacle and the man goes after it, there's no story. Then there's a result after the man or the woman goes after the obstacle, and usually, unless you're at the end of the book, there's more problems, more desire, more obstacles, more results, and on and on and on, and then it leads to an ending. This book has an ending. People bought the book. The people who the book is about are justifiably pissed off. They've been marginalized. And nothing has been done, in their opinion, you notice I used is or has, which is a derivative of is, for those folks. They feel oppressed. They haven't gotten their piece of the pie that the white writers, the people who've oppressed them, have gotten. And they have a justifiable gripe. Now, here we go. I'm a writer, not very successful. But I am a writer. Fortunately, I don't need to get money from what I write. I write to please myself and to affect others and experience their affect. In turn, that pleases me. I have read that two main afflictions that writers have are one, jealousy, and the other is a constant, desperate search for distractions. Or, worse yet, even both. I search for distraction, a swollen prostate, I need to pee, my groin itches, I need to scratch, bowels that rumble, I need to fart and annoy me, hunger, bloating, computer phobia, an unsharpened pencil, a cause that I need to stand behind, an attractive woman, a movie, the train that is rumbling by as I'm typing right now, and on and on and on. Why do I allow these distractions to throw me off track? I think it's because once it is down, the it, meaning my writing, the writing then has to stand up. And I'm scared shitless that it doesn't, so I'd rather be distracted. And say so I couldn't quite get it right because I was distracted. The writing that is staring back at me is the judge, 
in the jury. Jealousy, on the other hand, I see that so-and-so has a best-selling novel. I buy it or read it, the first 50 pages or whatever, and boom, I have a reaction. Then I is it. I is it. It is great. I is bad. It is shit. I is shit, too. <laughs> it just comes up, bam. Maybe it's more accurate to say the reaction has me. I don't have it. Let me say that again. The reaction has me. I'm wondering if anyone can relate to that. Does your reaction have you rather than you have it? And that reaction is followed by consistently comparison between so-and-so's work and mine. And more often than not, I get pissed, which is my main way of reacting in jealousy. I get pissed. Someone's fucking with something that I want that I don't got, I get pissed. I get pissed at them, or I get pissed at me, or both. So, my stance is that normal folks who have felt and been marginalized to feel that someone else is getting fame, money, credit for writing something that they may not have lived to the same degree as the victim of the oppression are pissed. It's like I got shit on and once fucking again, you assholes are benefiting from it. That is totally understandable and it makes sense to me. And even if it doesn't, I get it and I agree that somebody is benefiting from oppressing others, especially in the eyes of the oppressor, the, the person who's being oppressed. So, my opinion, it's not what it is, it's just my opinion, is that yes, writers should know their shit and they should get information from sources if they don't, and when they get that information, they should acknowledge it, and if they don't get it and acknowledge it, they should then just say, this is a piece of uninformed shit. Thank you. <laughs>
and there's a formula for fiction to become interesting. Yeah, I'm missing now. I'm just giving you my opinion. <laughs> that seems to work. And there's a formula for writing history in a fashion where people will buy it. Chernoff, he writes a thousand page books and people actually read them. Hamilton, did he write? No, Roosevelt, and whatever. Other people write that. I wrote a 758 page book. Nobody fucking read it. So there you go. I mean, I, I don't know how to do it. So, I mean, in my opinion, in my opinion, the answer is yeah. You got, you experience it. And if you can bring that experience to others, maybe you'll sell some books. Maybe people will read. But acknowledge your sources. Okay. We had another question. No, it was answered. It was kind of follow up to her question. Right on. Okay. Brian. Have either of you read American Dirt? Have either of us read American Dirt? I have not yet read American Dirt. <laughs> Paul, have you read American Dirt? I uh, know for a fact that I have not, and I know for a fact <laughs> that David just said he has not read American Dirt. Say so, don't, do you think that there is an argument that perhaps being white males, uh, not about necessarily, like regardless of what Will Ladd or any of these great places tell you, um, it's not actually about the problem of quote unquote cancel culture. Uh, it's actually because of the cumulative effect that has been going on since the beginning of time, where the stories of the people are taken from them by white colonialists and used to then create the system of the book publishing industry where, just like everything, everyone is friends and that's how we all get jobs and that's just like everyone here probably might know each other and you call people at whatever so you don't necessarily go out and look. Not just, I'm not just shitting on you, I just mean in general, it's how we all are like, and instead of that, like, um, is it because of like the cumulative effect of that of it piling on until at a certain point, sense of the quote the democratization, and that right, Joe, um, of <laughs> the internet being able to finally say like, hey, white people, can you stop? And I know that there's a lot of the things of the American dirt is because of the white gaze and perhaps stereotypical things of border crossing and victimization and shit, and is it not just the same thing as using rape as a trope and things like that? And do we say like, hey, sometimes women get raped and we're allowed to write about it, so shut up. Is that okay, or is that what you say? And are you also saying that the free market should dictate what it is, even though the systemic racism and of free market, let me repeat the question. So if I'm, if I'm understanding what the question is. There was a clear question at first. Have any of us read it? The rest of that. The, the rest of it is, I think, the, the question posed to us that do you have to, is it okay for a white person or any other person to tell a story of a person that they're not? And is the publishing industry just a, a vehicle for white people? No, is the backlash, which is being trumped up uh, of the whatever, of being like this, uh, uh, what do you call it, the identity politics, is it not just because this has been going on for so fucking long that at one certain point, it's Rosa Parks just saying, I am not going to get up. Because I'm sure that Rosa Parks, this argument would be happening if it was Rosa today, of, uh, like, against the American dirt. Are you saying that you hate Rosa Parks, sir? No, that's not what I'm No, I don't, I don't hate Rosa Parks. I never met her. I have no opinion on her. I think what she did on the bus is a great thing. It started a, a great movement, and I applaud her for her work. I cannot speak to her as a person. Maybe she was a fuckhead. I don't know. I didn't know her. But I can't rule it out. I well, she's here tonight. She stole that story, by the way, from this like, 16-year-old who was like a pregnant teenager who did the bus thing beforehand, and the NAACP came in and made her repeat the stunt because she was a better face for it. Maybe she was a fuckhead. Well, there you go. Rosa Parks was a fuckhead. Thank you, Rhiannon. Thank you. Yes. 
But that's, I mean, I, I think your, your question is, is, is the argument, can... Yeah, I mean, I, I, can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. specific, but general, because it's been going on for so long and at a certain point. But it doesn't eliminate, we, we can, yes, people take their stories and claim it as their own, but there are so many other stories out there. It doesn't limit their ability to tell the stories. What limits their ability to the stories is the structure of the publishing industry. If, if, if a great story comes from a Latina woman and they're like, no, we're going to wait for a honky woman to bring it to us, that's a problem. And I don't know for sure that that's what happened here. I don't think that's what happened here. Not as blatantly, but you know, I, I wonder. My, my so, uh, yeah. well, this discussion and this issue, separate from the discussion, meaning did a white woman benefit from writing something that comes across an experience of people of color and the people of color got marginalized not only from her success, but they've been marginalized, period, for centuries. I, I think that answer is yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, and, and, and marginalization, conflict, oppression, stories about it, overcoming it, not overcoming it, all of that, that's what sells. Put in the right structure and framework, that's what sells. Why do you think, Brian, publishing companies publish? Publish to make money. Some publish, that's my opinion, I'm missing. Some publish to make money while also attempting to meet a, a cause or their, uh, their, uh, you know, their purpose. And some just look to make money. And All right, so let's see, so let's see how this... In my opinion, this is good that it was, it, the book, was making a lot of money because it brought the issue up. As opposed to someone wrote a book like mine, nobody read, and it's just sitting there. So let's see where this lands. Your Honorable Judge Sadie, <laughs> have, you, have you come to your ruling? Okay. Give your reasons, sure. Okay. Uh, is that, is that For those of you who didn't hear, I, I won that debate. So weed versus booze, a heavily debated topic for whatever. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna stand up here and talk the politics of these two areas. I'm not gonna stand up here and talk about the regulations of these two areas. I'm gonna tell y'all a fun story that will hopefully shine some light on why weight is better. I'm gonna talk about my friend Cornelius. <laughs> he was 16 years old the first time he got drunk. It was December of 1986 at a party at his friend Janice's house. Janice's parents were on holiday in Egypt and Janice decided to throw a banger. You all know those, right? <laughs> Not only were Cornelius and Janice's friends there, but so were all of the cool kids in school. You had Troy, you had Johnny Ron, you had Vicky Jones, you had Brino, you had Batman, you had Muzzy, you had Gluesman, you had DJ Cleb, you had Jenny Smith, you had Maxie G and Mr. Hannigan from Seventh Period History. <laughs> it was the first time the artsy nerds had ever been in one room outside of school with all the jocks and Barbie dolls. How they got to the party together was beneath my friend Cornelius. Yo, corndog! Johnny Rom yelled from across the basement. You taking a shot of this shit? What is it? 
Cornelius asked, the 200-pound linebacker and scathing prick. Svedka, bruh, swig it hard. So Cornelius did swig it hard. One swig, not too bad. Two swigs, feeling okay. Another, it was pretty awesome. Fourth, it was the best night of his fucking life. One more, Cornelius mustered up the courage to speak to Vicki Jones, the prettiest girl in the 10th grade. How'd it go? Her chest was covered in his regurgitated Svedka by his third sentence. <laughs> Cornelius spent the rest of the night spooning the toilet in Janice's parents' bathroom. He wasn't sure if the dark red chunks in his vomit were blood or, fl or the flaming Hot Cheetos he ate earlier. Either way, he was pretty spooked. He was so drunk that Brino even scribbled a penis on the side of his face in black sharpie, which Cornelius barely, barely noticed until the next morning. Our hero spent the next three days chugging orange Motrin and popping extra, extra strength Tylenol like they were cherry flavored Pez. In school the following week, he'd pass Vicky and Bluesman in the hall who would point and laugh. Worst night of my life, Cornelius told his pals at the British Invasion fan club. Never drinking again. It wasn't until Friday of that week, nearly a week later from the incident, that Cornelius woke up feeling like he didn't want to puke or shit himself. Normal is what I guess you call it. But Cornelius's anxiety took a turn when he met Janice before fifth period biology. She was eating a turkey sandwich with honey mustard. Dude, my parents are still gone and we're getting high at my place tomorrow night. She said, want to join? High on what? Cornelius asked. He grew up in a fairly conventional household. <laughs> Weed. Weed? Weed. Mary Jane, Nuggets, Skunk. Think Dr. Dre's The Chronic or Crumbliner by Outkast. Because they were cool, they were well-versed in 90s hip-hop. Oh, I just realized I fucked that up. Because this takes place in 1986. I totally fucked up. It's just going to be us, she said. You, me, Dino, Tinker, and Ramona. None of the jocks or divas. So the next day, the five of them sat in Janice's basement and got torched. And I mean torched. Tinker brought his axe-shaped bubbler while Ramona rolled six blunts. Cornelius, having never smoked before, coughed and spat like he was a nine-year-old with croup. <laughs> the grass hit him in phases. First, his lungs were on fire. Then, he felt nothing, so he inhaled, inhaled some more. Then, once they turned on Seinfeld, he laughed nonstop for an hour, specifically at George's fat wallet in his back pocket. But what goes up must come down, and Cornelius's descent wasn't pretty. He found himself in the ER three hours later because he thought he was having a heart attack. He also thought he had genital herpes when he looked at his penis while he was peeing. He didn't have genital herpes. <laughs> Dude, you were hilarious, Janice said Monday morning. Seriously, you need to fucking be stoned all of the time. What, he said. What are you talking about? I wasn't funny. I thought he was dying. I thought he had herpes. I've never even had intercourse, he said. <laughs> Janice was cracking up. No, Cornelius, she said. You thought those things were happening to you. You never went to the hospital. You never thought you had herpes. You were sitting on my dad's lazy boy for six hours laughing and having a blast. Then you kind of blacked out, but you were still being hilarious. Hilarious! Cornelius couldn't believe his ears. Wow, he said. So I didn't vomit on Vicky Jones, and I didn't die, and I don't have herpes. Is weed always this fun? Yes, she said. Compared to booze, it doesn't give you a nasty hangover. It doesn't harm your liver. You can't overdose and it can be used medicinally. Smoke your fun, corn dog. Don't drink it. 
So Cornelius gave the doobie another shot, and he liked it. Six years later, he kept smoking. He also decided he wanted to pursue a career in music, specifically rap music, and he changed his name to Snoop Doggy Dog. Thank you. All right, please welcome Brent Oxford. Yeah. All right. Okay, thank you, Brett. Uh, first of all, it's an honor, let me just say, to be debating me five years ago. <laughs> For the podcast audience, uh, Brett and I look exactly the same, except I'm worse. All right. <laughs> Let's get started. Booze versus weed. This is what we're here to talk about. Human beings began creating fermented beverages some 20,000 years ago. Alcohol has been a staple of the economies and cultures of every civilization since the advent of agriculture. It is, in part, why we are all here. Today, there are 600 bottles of alcohol for every human being on Earth, which means that statistically, you are a beer, I think. <laughs> I don't know how statistics works. Now, is anything that I've said up to this point true? I don't know. I ran out of time and I didn't look it up. But I do believe that by the end of my short time here, I can convince you that alcohol is far superior to its slacker cousin, weed. To get us started, I'd like to propose a drinking game. Every time you think I make a good point, take a drink. Every time you think I make a bad point, take two drinks and you'll realize I was right. <laughs> Got a very tiny flask here. I've never used this before. Okay. What a terrible mistake. Alcohol is more important than weed. It's more important to us socially. Consider this. A hundred years ago, we in America outlawed booze for like five minutes and descended into chaos immediately. <laughs> it was so bad that we repealed the amendment within just a few years. Do you realize what kind of national cooperation it takes <laughs> to repeal an amendment? <laughs> today, we are, today, we're sending our kids to school in Kevlar crop tops, and we still can't do anything about the Second Amendment because your Facebook uncle still thinks Obama's coming to take his truck or whatever. But <laughs> in 1933, we said, hey, let's get a significant majority and ratify this motherfucker. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, shoulder to shoulder, I am your brother, bring back the boots. <laughs> We had chaos in the decade or so that alcohol was illegal. On the other hand, weed has been illegal till, up until like yesterday, and we were fine. <laughs> Nobody made us stink about it, except for the people smoking it, which brings me to my next point. Weed smells like a carton of cigarettes made sweaty love to a dance major, and it's time we all talked about it. <laughs> Look, I know that a conversation with a dude who like smells like whiskey isn't the most pleasant thing, but generally speaking, the stink radius is limited to like here, right? On the other hand, if someone in the same school district as me decides to light up some super skunk, suddenly I'm getting fumigated out of my third floor apartment. It's not close enough for me to get the courtesy of a contact high, but at least now all my stuff smells bad and my eyes hurt. Thanks, man. The smell of weed, the smell of weed, is referred to as skunky by the people who like it. Skunky! The best, most flattering descriptor even the potheads could come up with was, you know that smell? that that stripy rat badger blows out of his ass as a warning to all living things that they should stay as far away as possible. This smells like that. Would you like some? 
for your mouth? <laughs> Let's talk about the dangers of weed. And look, I don't want to sound like a dare special up here, but there are some real dangers to weed. And marijuana advocates like Brett <laughs> might say, but Ben, alcohol kills 88,000 Americans per year, and it's the third most common preventable cause of death, and it's responsible for 31% of fatal traffic accidents with around 10,000 annually, to which I say, how can we trust the math of someone who's that high? <laughs> But the dangers of weed are far more subtle and insidious. Weed robs the youth of their drive and ambition. It's given careers to countless brutal cartels and also Seth Rogen. <laughs> and at some point, it has made us all feel like we were cleverer than we were. Which brings me to my next point. With booze, you know what you're getting. Booze is booze. Unless you're 15, you don't, you don't dive into a drinking fest without knowing what to expect. For me, one drink, I feel nice. Two, I'm relaxed. Three, I'm buzzed. Four, I'm tipsy. And then after that, it's just the odds that I'll start singing Jesus Christ Superstar go up by 20% per drink. It's easy. It's predictable. Cannabis, on the other hand, okay, imagine this scenario. You're at a buddy's house and he offers you an edible. Just a little, a little cookie. The cookie is gone in a couple of bites. 30 minutes from now, will you A, feel a little more relaxed, B, start giggling maniacally, C, lose all ability to move your limbs, or D, be hiding in the bathtub because you're pretty sure the cat is angry at you. You have no idea. Every time I tell my stoner friends that I don't want to smoke because weed can make me anxious, they always insist it's all about picking the right strain, man. You gotta get the right strain. But then when you ask them what they're smoking, they know as much about it as they do the breed of their weird dog. They're like, yeah, it's kind of a hybrid indica, labradoodle, sativa, settler, husky mix. You don't know and I don't know and I don't want to risk it. In conclusion. My time is running short. There are many points that I haven't had a chance to fully dive into. For example, my opposition wasn't drinking weed, but instead a booze. Consider that. I don't think they have CBD in here. Shush, shush, A few other quick points. Alcoholic drinks can actually taste good. There are no idiots running around claiming vodka cures cancer. <laughs> and even though weed is now widely legalized, you're all still buying it from your dealers and not paying sales tax. I'm building schools and bridges with my self-destructive habit. What the fuck are you doing? But at the end of the day, we need only recognize this. These are substances that alter our brain chemistry. And in so doing, they tell us things. They are voices. And what those voices say matters. Weed tells us that we are all eloquent philosophers. We are not. It tells us that we are creative geniuses. We are not. It tells us that Rick and Morty is compelling television. <laughs> But what does alcohol tell us? It tells us that we can dance. <laughs> and we can. It tells us that we are sexy. And we are. It tells us that the people around us are sexy. And they are. It tells us that we can have the courage to live life boldly, ask for what we want. And if we do, the hangover will be worth. And by golly, it will. So, raise a boost with me to glass. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, do we have questions for the stoned or the drunk? Yes? I have a question for the stoned. Question for the stone. Answer, stone. maybe, if I'm coherent enough to What's your question? <laughs> Your presentation. Yes. For the podcast listener who maybe didn't hear the question, it was, uh, did, did your 1986 drunkard Cornelius puke on Vicky What's-Her-Face's boobies? And the answer was, puked all over them titties. He did. Okay. Drunk. Cool. Uh, great. Any... <laughs> Any other, any other questions? Cool, all right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Now, the Honorable Judge Sadie, your ruling. Thank you.